Montana looking, looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers discussion and analysis, plus entertaining and timely sports and pop culture topics. And this week, we're going to start with some housekeeping, some pro football-focused grades from the Arizona game, grades overall by some 49ers players. We're going to talk about Nick Bosa's start to the year, if Brock Purdy is a system quarterback, Christian McCaffrey's usage comes into focus a bit more, Ayuk's start to the year, we're going to go over some injuries and then preview the huge game on Sunday Night Football between the 49ers and the Cowboys. In the plus section, Major League Baseball playoffs have started and the wild card round is already completed. We'll talk that. We're going to discuss the Ahsoka season finale which aired last night, and I will give Week 5 NFL picks. But like always, it starts with the 49ers, so let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners! So I mentioned some housekeeping from last week. Just wanted to share with you Pro Football Focus's grades from the Arizona Cardinal game, top five on offense and defense. Offense, Brandon Ayuk led the way with a 93.4 rating. Christian McCaffrey, 91. Left tackle Trent Williams, 90.1. Brock Purdy, 79.8. Willie Sneed at wide receiver, 79, although only on seven snaps. On defense, Nick Bosa, 89.6. Cornerback Kendall Sheffield, 84.8, although only on 12 snaps. Linebacker Drake Greenlaw, 70.1. Linebacker Oren Burke, 68.9 on 19 snaps. And safety George Odom, 67.2 on 16 snaps. So a couple interesting things here, the way pro football focus grades or gives ratings. I'm not privy to that, but obviously Ayuk had the huge game. McCaffrey, four touchdowns. Purdy, 20 of 21 with the touchdown. Still only good for fourth on his team in a sub-80 rating and Bosa not getting a sack and we're going to talk about that still led the way for the defense with an 89.6 grade so they have their own analytical formula for how they rate players performance during games it's different than than us right it's different as fans if you're not throwing touchdowns or if you're throwing touchdowns or not getting sacks or not breaking tackles, making tackles, fumble recoveries, interceptions, whatever it may be, I'm sure they focus into the formula or they count into the formula from Pro Football Focus, but they're not lead elements, I would say, because if that was the case, Purdy's would be higher and Nick Bosa's would be, I guess, lower, but his pass rush win rate is still high. We're going to get into that and still leading the way for the defense. Some select snap counts that you may be interested in. On offense, a total of 55 snaps. George Kittle played 53 of 55. McCaffrey, 47. Ayuk, 42. 
Jordan Mason at running back, seven, and behind Kittle at tight end, Charlie Werner, seven, and Ross Dwelly, four. And on defense, a total of 60 snaps, Bosa, 48, Drake Jackson, 41, and Cleland Farrell at 34, so you can see the top three defensive ends, what that rotation looked like. And then let's go corner. Isaiah Oliver, behind Diamador Lenore and Charvarius Ward, had 45 snaps. Ambry Thomas was relegated to fourth, thank God, only 22 snaps, even though he did get beat on two plays that he was in. And Javon Kinlaw winds up being the number three D-tackle, getting 30 snaps, and Kevin Givens, the number four D-tackle behind him, got 29. So a good defensive line rotation, although not getting home, for sacks on Josh Dobbs, just the one, I believe, from Hargrave, they're keeping their eight or nine defensive linemen fresh throughout the game, which is going to be big for this week as they take on the Cowboys. Now, one overarch- some overarching stats from Pro Football Focus that I think is nice to share and hopefully it'll be nice to hear. So San Francisco has the highest graded player at four positions. At running back, Christian McCaffrey has an 84.8 overall rating. At tackle, Trent Williams, 88.8. At wide receiver, Brandon Ayuk, 93.5. And at edge, which is a defensive end or a linebacker who's an edge rusher, it's Nick Bosa at 93.8. Even with the contract holdout, Slow start said he he his body didn't feel like it was in totally into football shape until the Arizona game. Only two sacks or one sack, excuse me. It goes to show for all of us fans watching the game, obviously the impact that players have go beyond the typical stats that we see on a stat sheet. It's more than sacks for Bosa. It's winning his one-on-ones or double teams in terms of pass rush wins. It's getting QB hurries, getting QB hits. They all don't translate into sacks, and hopefully that will come for Bosa and the rest of the defensive line. But for folks out there, and there are many, saying that Nick Bosa, is, is he worth the money? He's having a slow quarter start to the season, but he's still considered and rated the highest uh, rated edge player in the NFL. So that's obviously beyond Miles Garrett. It's above Micah Parsons. Bosa is making his presence felt, even if it's not with the flashy sacks of which he had 18 last season. Now, let's stay with, with both his, Bosa's start. So only one sack in four games, but he's generated 20 total pressure. So let's do the math. That's five pressures a game just from him. Then you still have Hargrave, who is, I believe, leading the defensive tackles in the league in in total pressures. And you still have Armstead in the rotation of Cleland Farrell and Drake Jackson on the other side at defensive end. Nick Bosa's pass rush grade is a 92.7, second only to Miles Garrett. And I've... I don't want to say I've been outspoken, but I've made the point that the defensive line needs to get home more. You know, if you're not going to get a sack, make your presence felt, make the quarterback uncomfortable. They did that to a a certain extent with Josh Dobbs, but a credit to Dobbs last week for the Cardinals 
even when uncomfortable, he did not throw bad passes. Threw a few away, but didn't throw any passes into harm's way. He played a clean game. So even with the 49ers defensive line, which I believe has the highest pass rush win rate in the NFL, they're not affecting quarterbacks the way that maybe you would expect them to from a turnover standpoint. This is something that I think as long as health stays in the 49ers' favor, I think will improve. I've read articles where between defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes and defensive lineman Chris Kosorek, Steve Wilkes is the one that makes the calls on the defensive line stunts, whether they are, you know, defensive ends are stunting inside and D tackles are rushing outside, whatever gaps that they're supposed to hold or penetrate, it's coming from the D coordinator. And he said that it's not that D lineman Chris Kosorek doesn't, excuse me, doesn't have the knowledge or can't do it, but it's something that Steve Wilkes has called. I wonder if, and this is just to be picky, a quarter way into the season, if we can get those, the Niners can get that sack number up, maybe it's something that Wilkes collaborates with a, a bit more with Kosorek because the rotation seems pretty good. Seems to be keeping the DNs and D tackles fresh. But things that, could help San Francisco get off the field on a 95-plus yard drive against the Steelers in Week 1 and a 99-yard drive against Arizona Week 4, plus they also had an 87-yard drive for scores, would be sacks, right? A hit that forces an incompletion, pressure that forces a throwaway, things that were more apparent last year or in previous years, just again, we're looking at that big statistic in sacks, and we're going to get into that when we preview the Cowboy game. So... Hopefully Bosa's rounding into form will have a positive ripple effect on the rest of the line to help the 49ers get off the field more, especially on long drives. Now let's transition to offense. And Kyle Shanahan was Kyle Shanahan was asked uh, by one reporter if Brock Purdy is a system. Quarterback, And this just keeps going back to people not wanting to believe in Brock or having a hard time believing in what Brock Purdy's doing. They would have an easier time if Trey Lance was performing 70% of what Brock's doing, probably because of the number three draft pick, probably because of what the 49ers traded up to get him. He's a seventh, Purdy's a seventh round pick. Teams passed on him six or seven times or more if they had seven draft picks. So they still want to peel back the onion to see if they can find flaws in Brock Purdy's game. Is every game going to be great? No. Is is Brock Purdy going to throw interceptions? Yes. Is he going to lose games? Yes. It happened to Montana, Young, Brady, Favre, Elway. Joe Burrows had a bad year. Justin Herbert... Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes loses games. Patrick Mahomes got outplayed by Zach Wilson Monday night against the Jets. It happens. It's just, and I'm not a Brock Purdy homer, but I'm getting, it's it's a little bit tiresome where you, where folks, especially fans, and the media have to do their job, even though media, media members can be trolls also, but fans are 
looking for that game to be proven right. Ha ha, he is not that good. Well, one one bad game isn't going to erase the 10 plus good games that he's had. I, I'm sorry to tell you, I, even if it's the last play of the game or a last drive that he doesn't convert, it is not going to eliminate all the other good that came before it, folks. And the question to Shanahan is Brock a system QB. Here's Shanahan's retort. That's pretty ridiculous. You just got to watch the tape. I mean, he plays at a high level every time he's been out there and he's done it in a lot of different situations versus a lot of different defenses on the road at home in playoff games. And even when injured, Purdy is completing 72.3% of his passes this year. Obviously that number is buoyed by the fact that he went 20 of 21 last week, but generally anything in the mid sixties is considered really good. He's low 70s. That's Drew Brees territory. And he's a Hall of Fame or will be a Hall of Fame quarterback. And the comparison isn't because he's small and white and immobile and doesn't have the strongest arm. Pinpoint accuracy. And that is what Brock Purdy is showing us. Is it on every single throw? No. He's not a cyborg. He's not a robot. No quarterback can do it. But the good far outweighs the bad, and it's unfortunate that Shanahan had to answer that. I don't believe in the term system. And I said last week, you know, 49ers or two podcasts ago, excuse me, that 49er quarterbacks have been saddled with the label system quarterback. Either it's the system, Bill Walsh's system, Mike Holmgren's, Mike Shanahan's, uh, Steve Mariucci's, now it's Kyle Shanahan's West Coast system quarterback. Or the retort's going to be, well, you have all this talent. Of course, you're going to look good. Guys, do we really think you could put any quarterback in the league, starter, second string, third string, practice squad, off the street, into Shanahan's system with enough time to prepare and adapt and learn and understand, and they're going to perform the way Purdy does? Of course not. They had a quote-unquote quarterback with a higher ceiling that couldn't grasp it. And they cut bait. They traded him. Trey Lance wanted out. They granted his wish. And now he's QB3 on Dallas. Don't tell me anyone can do it. Don't hang on the, well, he doesn't have a strong enough arm. He can't throw it 40 yards on a line. It's not what's being asked of him. It's not going to be what's asked of him. And I think he knows his arm limitations. He's not going to try it. Smart enough guy, right? Smart enough guy. So, System quarterbacks, to me, let's go a step backwards to college. I think college football is riddled with system quarterbacks that cannot translate into the pros. Steve Spurrier's system, when he was the head coach at Florida, with Danny Werfel and got Danny, well, Danny Cannell was Florida State. I'm blanking out another Florida Gator quarterbacks, but they never succeeded. When Steve Spurrier became the coach of the then Washington Redskins, he brought Danny Werfel in, hoping that, you know, his shotgun given to your quarterback no protection offense would work it didn't he was out of the league in a year or two even quarterbacks that play in a pro style system in college like in alabama maybe like in ohio state maybe like a clemson still need to adapt because then they are here's the the other brock purdy excuse guys they are playing with all-star players clemson not that good this year but past several years ohio state 
Alabama, they have games and matchups where they have all-stars and they are playing against basically JV teams, JV schools that have no business being on the field with them, inflating their stats, making them and their playmakers look better than they are. Is there a difference between the 49ers playmakers and some other teams and the defenses they're going up against? Sure. But boy, that margin for error for Brock Purdy is still, and and any other quarterback, is still thin because you still have to make the right read. You still have to deliver the ball on time, anticipate the rush, and make the correct throw. So system quarterbacks, I I don't buy it. In college, I do. In the pros, I don't. Because if you, a West Coast offense is a type of offense, if it's a system, then half the league runs some variation of the West Coast offense, if not more. Then Brock can play anywhere. And I think in a future podcast, I'll go over, and it's not going to be if the Niners win or lose against Dallas, um, quarterbacks that, teams that Brock Purdy would make better if he was the quarterback instead. To maybe at least, I'm not going to, we're never going to put this debate to rest, but just to put out there, it's not that he's on the Niners. It's that he's Brock Purdy and can process the way that he can. Now, let's stay with the offense and talk Christian McCaffrey. Talked about his usage the past several weeks. It's not declining. He had 27 touches this past week, 20 carries and seven receptions. McCaffrey leads the league and carries with 80. That's a, that's neat math. 20 carries a game. Leads in rushing yards, 459 and rushing TDs with six. McCaffrey has 98 total touches for 600 total yards and seven total touchdowns. With these numbers, McCaffrey is on pace, if he stays healthy, for 340 carries and 416 total touches. Now, by comparison, taking last year into account playing with the Panthers and coming over midseason on that trade and playing with the 49ers, McCaffrey had 244 total rushes and 329 total touches. So nearly 100 less carries and about 90 less touches. And he was on a Panther team that was using him heavily because they were talent deprived and and a bit now still are. Then came to San Francisco and it was a slow ramp up, at least the Kansas City game. And then he didn't have, he didn't play that much, but then subsequent games, um, probably two or three games in, he got into a normal workload. So last year, 90 uh, fewer total touches. So let's go back to his heyday in Carolina when he really got on the fantasy map. 2018, he was 22 years old. So that's five years ago. He's 27 now. He had 219 rushes and 326 total touches. In 2019, 23 years old, he had 287 carries, 403 total touches. So that 2019 year is his high watermark in terms of usage, 287 and 403. Right now he's on pace for 340 and 416. Again, I don't know how they're going to limit it because he is Shanahan's still shiny new toy. He and Purdy technically are on the offense. And I guess Ronnie Bell, but he's a rookie. He doesn't get that much playing time. But they need to figure out 
shaving a couple carries and a couple receptions off. And if Mitchell comes back and plays this week and it helps, great. Remember I said during the Cardinal game, toward the end of the game, up 28-16, to 16, even commentator Mark Sanchez said, ah, I don't think you need him in here. Maybe you just, you know, you, you put him in the tub, you ice him up, and you get him ready for next week. McCaffrey was asked straight out if he has a problem with his usage, or not a problem, or if he sees his usage being too high, and his flat-out answer was no, not at all. One, what is a fo- what, what is he what is he gonna say? Right? What is he supposed to say there? And two, football players want to be on the field. You, you know, you hear all the time football player, not all the time, but football players faking injuries, not wanting to come out, sometimes faking concussion symptoms and saying, Oh, it's my shoulder, my hip, my back, to not, especially now with the strict concussion protocol, to not come out. Shanahan needs to save McCaffrey from himself and someone needs to save Shanahan from McCaffrey, if that makes sense. So whether it's um, Anthony Lynn um, or the running back coach, someone needs to get the rotation a little bit better. And I refuse to believe that Jordan Mason only got three carries last week because Eli Mitchell was not in. I'm starting to see the difference between Eli Mitchell and Jordan Mason not being that great. I think they for the stretch run, and they do have a bye in week nine for some rest, but this is the type of game, granted week five, where they're going to need McCaffrey. Week five, great defense against Dallas. Sunday night football, not like that matters. At home, a team that you might be fighting for home field advantage against. This is a game that you need them. So if they use them 25 to 30 times or touches, sure. But when you have Cleveland the following week, even though they're a good team and a good defense, other teams that if you can get up, you need to take McCaffrey out. One last thing on that of note, if McCaffrey's fresh in any way overall, I mean, I don't think anyone's really fresh even going into week five in the NFL season because of how violent the game is. But McCaffrey only played three games in 2020 due to injury, which I believe was a shoulder and a quad. And then let's stay on that side of the ball. Brandon Ayuk returned, had a huge game coming back from that shoulder injury. Here's a fun stat for you. Brandon Ayuk has 17 receptions. All of them have gone for either first downs or touchdowns. Big play, Brandon. Hopefully that keeps up against Dallas. Quick note on the injury report. I am recording this on Thursday, so things could obviously change. Some limited participants, Debo still dealing with a rib and knee irritation, Juwan Jennings, a shin injury, uh, Eli Mitchell, his knee, Charvarius Ward, his heel. So those were limited participants in practice on Wednesday. Hopefully they are all good to go against Dallas. And John Feliciano, the backup center guard, had a concussion last week. He's in the concussion protocol. Hopefully he is able to come out of it. Otherwise, a relatively clean bill of health from a severity standpoint, since the four I mentioned before, Feliciano, Debo Jennings, Eli, and Ward are considered day to day. And without further ado, that leads us into the preview of the big 49ers versus Cowboys game, 815 Sunday night football nationally televised. San Francisco, as you know, has won the last two matchups both times in the playoffs. 2021, they won 20-3-17 to at Dallas with Jimmy G as quarterback. 
And last year in the divisional round, San Francisco at home beat Dallas 19 to 12. Here is something interesting to note and to keep track of in both of those games against the Cowboys. 49er quarterbacks have not thrown a touchdown. Jimmy had no touchdowns and one interception in 2021. Purdy was 19 of 29, did not throw a touchdown last year against the Cowboys. Now you can look at that two ways. Okay, Cowboys, pretty good defense, pretty good pass defense under D coordinator uh, Dan Quinn and some of the talent they have out there. Not a to-be-expected, because I would expect a team to have a, a passing touchdown in the playoffs or, or, or against even against a good team, right? Like, one's not too much to ask. Or you can look at it as, wow, the 49ers still managed to be a really good team twice without throwing a touchdown. San Francisco has picked off Dallas three times total in those two games, once in Dallas, twice last year. Another key stat in both games, the 49ers have held Dallas to under 80 yards rushing. And the 49ers themselves went over 110 in both. I think in Dallas, or I'm sorry, uh, in, in Dallas, they had about 167 yards rushing. In San Francisco, 113. So let's go over the Cowboys' uh Skill positions and star players on offense, Dak Prescott at quarterback, running back Tony Pollard, tight end Jake Ferguson, and at receiver CeeDee Lamb, Michael Gallup, and Brandon Cooks. On defense, it starts with Micah Parsons, Demarcus Lawrence, and Dante Fowler, our defensive end, edge rusher, running mates. Stephon Gilmore at cornerback. They are missing Trayvon Diggs at corner, tore his ACL he is unfortunately done to done for the year, and that will that's a big hit in the Cowboys secondary, but it is mitigated by the pass rush that the Cowboys do bring to the table. Now, overall stats on offense and defense. Let's start with Dallas. Dallas sports the number 11 overall offense, 14th passing, 7th rushing, and 4th in points scored. Defense, Dallas has the number two overall D. Second in passing, allowing only 148 yards per game. 16th in rushing, allowing almost 112. First in points allowed, 10.3 points. And they are the number one team in the turnover margin at plus nine. Now, let's remember, too, that the Cowboys have played in order. The Giants, the Jets, the Cardinals, and the Patriots. Those are all teams... That are one in three. The Giants, Jets, and Pats would have two losses outside of the Cowboy loss. The, the Cardinals actually beat, even though they're a one in three team, the only win they had came against Dallas and they wound up winning by double digits two weeks ago. So some of those numbers are inflated. The Giants, compounded by the fact that it was a disgustingly rainy opening um, Sunday night in MetLife Stadium. Looked terrible. The Jets, it was, what, week two of Zach Wilson. He was not functional yet. Cardinals and Josh Dobbs ran the ball, threw the ball well. They were very effective, and the Patriots just crapped all over themselves. So let's take that with a grain of salt for now. San Francisco has the number two overall offense, ninth in passing, third in rushing, 
and third in points scored at 31.3. Defensively, they are fifth overall, 17th against the pass, allowing 218.3 yards per game, third against the rush, allowing 66, and third in points allowed at 14.5. And the 49ers have played the Steelers, the Rams, the Giants, and the Cardinals. So the Steelers and the Rams, two and two, the Giants and the Cardinals, one and three. They obviously have two common opponents. They both beat up on the Giants. The Niners beat the Cardinals by 19. The Cowboys lost by, I believe it was, 12. Pass rush. Here's where I think Dallas has has an advantage between Parsons, Lawrence, and when Fowler comes in. 14 total sacks on the year for Dallas, nine for San Francisco. Five may (coughs) seem like a huge number. It equates to about 1.25 more sacks per game. And listen, San Francisco would take happily take one extra sack a game if they could have gotten Dobbs off the field once on that long drive. They could have gotten um, Pickett off the field one more time or Stafford or Daniel Jones. So that is, you know, you're looking at, you know, that's like 55% more sacks, even though it's a 14 to 9 number that Dallas has put up. Let's go back to that Cardinals game. Arizona wins 28 to 16. Cardinals put up 400 yards of offense. Dallas did have the one turnover. It was a late interception that Dak Prescott threw in the end zone. Arizona played another clean game. No turnovers. Quarterback Josh Dobbs for the Cardinals, 17 of 21, very efficient, 189 yards, and one touchdown. He was sacked twice as a team. The Cardinals ran the ball 30 times for 222 yards and two touchdowns, over seven yards a carry. Mike McCarthy is now the play caller for the Dallas Cowboys, and I think what I've seen from Dallas in the first four weeks is He is trying to get the Cowboys to be much more balanced overall, right? They're 14th passing, they're 7th rushing. That might have been flipped in the past couple years under then-coordinator Kellen Moore. While while people may not think McCarthy is the greatest play caller, and maybe that the game, I don't want to say, has passed him by, um, but he's not as innovative as some other offensive coordinators out there, I think he's going to put Dak in a situation where he's going to try to limit his mistakes. Dak was the reason that they lost last year in the playoffs. Dak's two interceptions, plus Tony Pollard going out with the broken ankle in, I believe, the second quarter. So if the Cowboys can play conservatively but aggressively, they have weapons. They have three good wide receivers, a good young tight end, a running back like a McCaffrey who can catch the ball out of the backfield, a pretty good offensive line. And if they're getting back more to the roots of a West Coast offense, then the ball is going to get out of Dak's hands quickly. The counter to that is, will Steve Wilkes challenge these receivers? Will he go away from this soft umbrella coverage that sometimes allows teams to march down the field? And it doesn't help if you're playing that coverage and your D-line isn't getting sacks on play or even plays that they aren't getting pressure on the quarterback. I don't think Dallas's offensive line is going to neutralize the Niners' pass rush, but I'm curious to see how, how much more aggressively 
And I don't mean playing bump and run on the line of scrimmage, but how much closer to the line of scrimmage San Francisco's corners are going to be. I understand the rationale of playing a softer or umbrella coverage. One, you're hoping your pass rush can get there, and it's not a huge factor that you're playing soft. Two, if it's a long yardage situation, you might as well give up six or seven yards on like a third and 15 or whatever it may be. And three, it allows your cornerbacks to read and react, right? Once that ball is in the air and getting to a receiver, your corners can drive on it, either break it up if they're close enough to it or make an immediate tackle to minimize yards after the catch. But I do think, you know, instead of that seven yard cushion, maybe something like a three or four yard cushion to take away maybe slants or outs um, that teams when they when they needed it against the Niners, especially Arizona last week, they got it. Josh Dobbs is and Kenny Pickett are not better quarterbacks than Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott does have a habit of making a stupid mistake almost weekly. He's been cleaner this week. He's not a Jimmy, I shouldn't say weekly, but at inopportune times. Jimmy G makes kind of bad decisions weekly. But I think for Dallas, it's conservative. It's taking what the Niners give you because the Niners are going to give a lot. And then once when you drive down the field to not get frustrated and force anything. When a field goal's there, you know, take it. You know, McCarthy, don't, you know, fourth and two or three. Like, even Shanahan, I wouldn't go for it. As we've seen the last two games, points are at a premium, right? So, 23-17, 40 total points in 2021. 19-12, 31 total points last year. These are two good offenses that can control, not eliminate and not mitigate, but can control um, two good offenses for the 49ers Purdy's dealing he's you know a good year what four or five touchdowns um, and no interceptions playing at a high percentage you know if this is going to sound silly but if he could have a Josh Dobbs like game again Dobbs was 17 of 21 only four incompletions completed you know 68% of his passes against the Cowboys deal it Take your, your long shots when you can. Eat the ball. If there's a pass rush, throw it away. I hope Shanahan dials up more three- and five-step drops, goes away from these seven-step protections, and maybe takes a page out of the Seahawks playbook, doing some innovative things Monday night against the Giants since the Seahawks had some injuries on the offensive line, missing both offensive tackles. They had formations where they had two tight ends in the backfield whose sole purpose was to run up on either side and support the offensive tackles and block the defensive edge rushers. Micah Parsons is a game wrecker. If Micah Parsons lines up over Colton McKivitt's all game, that's going to be a problem, a big problem. It's a problem wherever Micah Parsons lines up. And also because they have Demarcus Lawrence on the other side. Running the ball will help. Maybe getting three running backs involved, keeping them fresh, bringing in Jordan Mason as, as maybe the hammer in the second half to wear down that Cowboys defense. And Trayvon Diggs not being there it is huge for the 49ers offense and huge for the Cowboys secondary. There's only one Stephon Gilmore. I wonder if he's going to shadow Ayuk because Ayuk is the better receiver and more of a big play down the field receiver than Debo is. Debo is more of the within 10 yards or a screen at the line of scrimmage and then taking it 
all the way down the field or, or you know, slip screens to McCaffrey, et cetera, to pick up 10, 15 yards and a first down. Two evenly matched teams. Really excited for this game. I hate Dallas. Growing up, the teams I hate and still hate and, and wound up, you know, hating more as an adult, Dallas, Green Bay, the Giants, and then more recently, as they've gotten better, you know, the past 10 years, the Seattle Seahawks. It's always a good day and a good week when the 49ers can beat the Cowboys, go to 5-0 and in the NFC West, and keep a game lead on Seattle, who looks like a good team. I mean, they beat up on the Giants. The Giants are not really good. But Seattle, even with a gimpy Geno Smith and Drew Locke coming in in, in some instances, that secondary, I mean, granted, that D-line got 11 sacks, which is still unheard of and ridiculous, and an outlier, Seattle's going to be a problem. Seattle is going to be a problem. So 49ers, San Fran against Dallas, and Seattle still has to play Dallas too. They have to play Philly just like the Niners do. The Niners are going to Cleveland. you know. So there are some common games that they're going to have with Seattle, but this is a team that might win the East, that you might be jockeying for a first-round bye against. Playoff implications as early as Week 5. Jerry Jones came out and said that the Super Bowl, he believes, runs through San Francisco. Now, that's bulletin board material for the Eagles <laughs> when the Eagles played Dallas twice. Prescott was asked about the feeling, you know, leaving the 49ers field after the playoff games. He said, okay, you got me pissed off. Thank you for that. I don't feel good about this game. This, to me, feels like the rivalry in the early 90s when San Francisco lost against Dallas in the NFC Championship game in 92 and 93. 92 at home, 93 at Dallas. And then they played in the regular season in San Francisco. The Niners won 21 to 14, played again in the NFC Championship game in San Francisco, 138 to 28. It feels like this is a game that Dallas is circling more than San Francisco. Evenly matched teams. It feels like to me that this is a game that Dallas wants and needs more than San Francisco. And I think Dallas is going to come out and match San Francisco's intensity. Yes, their defensive stats and points allowed and yards and everything have been inflated by the Giants and the Jets, and they put on a clinic against the Patriots. I will give them credit. But this is a good, fast defense that, yes, the Cardinals found a way to beat by two scores, and the Niners beat them by two scores. But football in life, the transitive property doesn't work. You know that if... A is greater than B, and and B is greater than C, then A is greater than C. Like, it, it doesn't work like that in football. Just because a team that you beat, beat a team you're going to play, doesn't mean that you're automatically going to get the win. Obviously, it's settled on the field. It's settled between um, the sidelines. And for whatever reason, I'm feeling like this is a game that Dallas wins 23-20. to I'm not a homer. I guess I am conservative or a bit more leery of what the Cowboys bring to the table than I am in years past. The last two years, I thought that they would beat them in the playoffs. They just felt like the better team. And they probably are the better team right now, right? They're 4-0. Offense is clicking. Brock's clicking. The defense has me worried. I'm worried that the defense will not be able to get off the field on a couple drives that they need to and that Dallas will make a stop with that pass rush when they need to.
So I'm unfortunately predicting Dallas 23 to 20, and I hope I am wrong. That concludes the 49ers section of the podcast for today. Stick around in the plus section. We're going to be talking the conclusion of the Major League Baseball wildcard round of the playoffs. Ahsoka season finale. I have some big thoughts there and where the story may go and conclude by making week five NFL picks. Stay with us. It's plus time. All right, kicking off the plus section with some baseball talk and living in the Northeast, baseball playoffs really have no meaning. And it's not because the Yankees and Mets were eliminated. It's because it's baseball and it's monumentally boring and I don't care. But the wild card round went pretty swiftly the past couple days with four sweeps and just wanted to talk about that. So as you guys may know, the wild card round is a best of three, all played at the field of the team that is better in the American League. The Rangers swept the Rays 2-0 in Tampa. Rangers were really a hot, cold team this year. Um, Started out not so fantastic, got hot in a little bit of a slump to end the season, but good enough to beat Tampa Bay twice in Tampa or Clearwater or wherever the heck they, um, they actually play. And this is a Tampa team that started out super hot, Finished second in the East, the AL East behind the Orioles, had 99 wins. But I don't know if you guys saw this. Their first playoff game had only 19,000 in attendance, the lowest for a playoff game in over 100 years since 1919, and that was because there was a world war going on. Tampa does not draw. They play small ball, or they play have a small ball type of roster. They don't pay their, their players a lot. When they are up for arbitration or up for a free agency contract, they'll go somewhere else and make a lot more money. Yet they're getting another stadium very nearby where Tampa plays now, and I don't understand it. The, the season tickets or game ticket revenue is so low there. And I know there's other things to do in Florida, just like there's other things to do in California, which is why, you know, the Rams and the Raiders had to move, you know, back in the 80s and 90s because they just weren't getting the attendance and, and the fan support. But it is a shame. The Rays have been a good team the past half decade and fans really aren't out there to support other than their World Series against the Phillies, however many years ago that was. And a 99 win season is all for not getting swept. The Twins, who won the West, or I'm sorry, the Central, Beat the Blue Jays 2-0. Good for the Twins, man. Like, this was a team that the Yankees have owned for, what, 10, 15 years? They actually took the season series from the Yankees this year, so good for them. And it's a team that really hasn't been relevant in, you know, the divisional round, the ALCS, or the World Series since, you know, what was it, when they beat the Braves in the World Series when Kirby Puckett was on the team? So you got to feel good, you know, for, for the Twins and its fans. The Arizona Diamondbacks, second in the West, beat the NL Central champion Brewers 2-0 in Milwaukee. And the Phillies beat the Marlins. Phillies were at home 2-0. So we don't, you know, this home field advantage stuff, especially in a best of three when all three games could be in your home park, didn't really matter. You had two road teams winning, two home teams winning, all teams 
won it two two nil two nil, not dropping a game. Major League Baseball playoffs, just interesting symmetry, right? So three teams made the playoffs in both, <clears throat> excuse me, both the AL East and NL East. Two both made it in the AL West and NL West, and one team each from the Central, the Central Division champs, for whatever that's worth. But I just thought that was interesting symmetry. As we move to the divisional round, we have Minnesota at Houston. The Rangers will take on the AL East champion Orioles. Phillies, Braves, and Diamondbacks, and Dodgers. So we go from a best of three in the wild card round to a best of five in the divisional round, 2-2-1, two, two, and then a best of seven in the AL, uh, in the League Championship Series and the World Series. The NBA desperately needs this. From the jump of, assuming I'm not mistaken, everything's a seven-game series, and it's awful. They used to have a five-game series. I remember when the Nuggets upset the Sonics um, in five games. Huge upset. It was a one versus an eight. But they, I mean, they didn't wind up changing that, I think, into the early mid-2000s. And everything's still a best of seven. And it's awful. The playoffs feel like they are just as long as the regular season. It's just not worth it. You know, it doesn't mean you need to have a best of three wild card round, but just go to maybe a best of five in the first and second round, and then a best of seven for the conference championships and the uh, NBA finals. It's too long of a season. And listen, baseball's got the longest season still. It's still 162 games, and now you have um, four rounds of playoffs, best of three, best of five, best of seven, and World Series. It's still long. For whatever reason, the NBA feels like it's longer. And I think a best of five would help mitigate the whole, well, the, the regular season doesn't matter in the NBA. It's just the playoffs. Seeding doesn't matter. It's just the playoffs. The shorter the series, theoretically, the better chance the worst team has to win that series. So if you're going to have teams like the Lakers and the Bucks and maybe the Clippers, I don't know if Phoenix would do this or Denver since they won the championship, Miami. If you're going to have the better teams not really worry about jockeying for playoff positioning and getting home court, then make it mean something in the first two rounds that they have to be a little bit more on their game because they could be upset in a best of five versus going best of seven every single round and making it a slugfest. But baseball, and I think games continue on, I think Saturday, the divisional rounds, uh, I was going to say tip off or kick off, pitch off, begin, whatever the baseball analogy is going to be. So transitioning from sports, let's go to TV. Star Wars Ahsoka, the season finale, released yesterday. And where we were was Thrawn, his stormtroopers, witches getting ready to leave the planet Peridia and head back into the Star Wars galaxy proper and Ahsoka and company trying to stop him. And this is exactly where the episode picks up. Thrawn sends out two TIE fighters to attack where Ahsoka, Sabine, and Ezra are with the caravan of snail-like tortoise biped natives. Um, the ship gets damaged initially on a flyby by the TIE fighters, and 
they're able to give the engine a little bit of a burst as the TIE fighters are coming back around that Ahsoka's ship with her their its wings kind of clips and, and cuts the two TIE fighters in half. So crisis averted, but the ship takes on more damage. Um, Hu Yang, the robot, and the snail-like natives are left to fix the ship while Ahsoka, Ezra, and Sabine go off on werewolf back, animal, animal back, whatever it is, to assault the um, the spire, the temple where the Star Destroyer is docked um, and Thrawn is finish, has finished the cargo, um, docking all the cargo, getting all the cargo on board, and the three heroes are on their way to stop Thrawn. And right initially, this is kind of where I have a little bit of the issue, is, you know, once they announce that the, the cargo is is all loaded onto the Star Destroyer, the Star Destroyer can just leave. Even if they it just flies a half a mile in any direction, the hyperspace ring that it needs to dock with can catch up to it there. The fact that the, the Star Destroyer is still basically being skewered by this spire is the instrument that allows the heroes to attempt to get onto the Star Destroyer. So, listen, I know it's TV, it's fantasy, you have to suspend belief in terms of certain story beats to give either the good guys a chance or the bad guys the upper hand, whatever it may be. It just felt like a really weird tactical decision. Like, let's stay on top of this spire that allows access to our Star Destroyer for as long as possible until we are docked with the hyperspace ring. Did Just didn't make sense. Um, Morgan, the character that was um, a one of the Dathomiri that came with Thrawn, I'm sorry, that came with um, Balin Skull and Shinhati to the the new galaxy to find Thrawn is now like a super Dathomiri witch. She winds up getting infused with mystical energy from one of the, the three witches that resided on Peridia. And she winds up battling um, Ahsoka while Ezra and Sabine go after the Star Destroyer. Now, before that, stormtroopers are, are dispatched to either slow down or kill, although they don't, they don't, Ahsoka, Sabine, and Ezra. The stormtroopers are cut down, but the witches wind up, you know, using their magic and chanting and bring them back to life, essentially zombies. And it was done in kind of a pretty cool fashion. There is a non-canon book called Star Wars Death Troopers, which I never read it, but deals with this um, zombie-like stormtrooper phenomenon or, or magic. So it was it was cool for a lot of book reading fans to see this being brought to life. So Ezra and Sabine wind up battling these um, zombie stormtroopers while Ahsoka battles Morgan. The stormtroopers start to get the upper hand of, of Sabine and Ezra, and Sabine is being choked, lifted off the ground, and she finally is able to use the force to summon her lightsaber, and she stabs the zombie in the head with it. Ahsoka eventually winds up in a protracted lightsaber battle. Morgan uh, Elspeth has a sword that the witches, the three witches, of Peridia kind of conjure, and it is infused with some sort of like a green energy that allows it to withstand lightsabers in a battle. And it was, I think, a really well choreographed battle, but Ahsoka winds up um, killing her, stealing her sword, which I don't think she really does anything with after that. 
But as Ezra and Sabine kind of make their way up the spire, the Star Destroyer is docked with the hyperspace ring. It's pulling away. Sabine says, hey, we can make this jump. And, and Ezra's like, no, no, we can't. She's like, well, no, you go first. I'll push you. I'll force push you. And then you'll kind of pull me along. And you can see Ezra's hesitant because I don't even think he knows at this point that she could use the force. Um, and even if he knows it, he's maybe going to doubt her strength in the force. But Ezra jumps, uses the force to augment his jump. And Sabine does push him, makes it onto the Star Destroyer. She looks like she's going to follow, but notices that Ahsoka is being pinned down by a bunch of a bunch of stormtroopers. So she stays behind to help Ahsoka. They wind up killing all the stormtroopers. The um, their ship is repaired. Huyang repairs the ship. Um, Ahsoka and Sabine kind of jump off the top of the spire, and they wind up flying away, presumably stranded on the planet, while Ezra escapes. The ship goes to, um, the Star Destroyer goes to hyperspace. Sabine's ship, Sabine and, and Ahsoka's ship give chase to no avail. Thrawn goes to hyperspace, winds up back in the, in the Star Wars proper galaxy. The Star Destroyer goes to the planet Dathomir with its bunch of cargo, which I'm kind of going to get into in a minute. Ezra escapes on an Imperial shuttle, meets up with the Rebellion and Hera and the droid Chopper. And Ahsoka and Sabine are, you know, stranded on the planet Peridia with Shin, the the female dark dark Jedi, who winds up, it looks like, joins the native mercenaries. And Balin's skull, you last see him, he's standing kind of on a mountaintop, and as you zoom out, it looks like one of those Lord of the Rings type of mountain statues of a person. And what this actually winds up being, and this is something that ties into the Clone Wars cartoon series, he is, he's standing on the outstretched arm, the hand, of a character who winds up being the father of these characters called the Mortis Gods. And I'm going to get into that in a second. To the right of the father, if you're looking at him, but I guess it's the father's left, to the right of the father is, is a statue of the sun. And to the left of the father, there's a crumbled statue, which apparently is supposed to be the daughter. And these <clears throat> three figures were introduced in the Clone Wars cartoon series when Anakin Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Ahsoka are spiritually transported to this planet where the Force is very powerful. The son character is steeped in the dark side. And the daughter is a light side character. And the father is there to keep them in balance. The father wants Anakin to take his place as a godlike force character that would keep the force in balance. But what winds up happening is, if I'm remembering correctly, the son winds up stabbing the father and the daughter. And I think the daughter winds up almost dying, but she infuses her life force to save Ahsoka. So in, in some way, even though it wasn't explored in the Ahsoka series, Ahsoka has within her the power of one of the first light side force beings. Nothing more in the, the, this is called the Mortis arc. It's three episodes from the Clone Wars. If you have Disney plus and you want to check it out after you watched Ahsoka, I would. It gives more background of these characters. And again, these are just stone mountain statues that appear for about five seconds. 
at the end shot of um, the season finale of Ahsoka, but it gives nice additional force lore, which I always think is cool when you're dealing with something fictitious, fictitious and mythical like the force. Now, on top of that, these Mortis characters were expounded upon somewhat in novels that are no longer considered canon. This was pre-Disney buying Star Wars. And it goes even further to say that there was a character named Abeloth that wound up, that was a servant of, you know, you're going back maybe millennia, was a servant of the father and the daughter and the son. And she was starting to grow old because she was immortal. She was basically their servant that she winds up, um, I think drinking from the font of power of knowledge and bathing in the font of power. She winds up becoming a godlike creature, like the father, the son, and the daughter. And Abeloth, since she's female, takes on the role of the mother to, you know, the husband, the wife to the husband, and a mother to the children. That's kind of in the in the books where the the history of it stops. But she wound up becoming so out of control and powerful that. The father, son, and daughter had to confine her to an area of space called the Maw Cluster that had multiple black holes. So she couldn't, like it was a prison. She could not leave. What winds up happening later in these non-canon Star Wars books is Jason Solo, who is in these books the son of Han Solo and um, Princess Leia and the twin brother of, of Jaina Solo, winds up going to the dark side, falling. He becomes dark. Darth Cadus. And even though he wants to bring peace to the galaxy, he's doing it in a way that Luke and Leia and Han and the Rebellion are not a fan of. They wind up destroying this big super weapon called Centerpoint Station that is near the Maw Cluster. And one of the things that's keeping the, the black holes in a certain proximity to where Abeloth is that she can't escape. And they destroy it. They destroy Centerpoint Station so Jason Solo cannot get it and use it against them. Once that station is destroyed, Abeloth is released. And she winds up actually driving some Jedi mad or crazy prior to her meeting up with the Senate and the Rebellion. Although she's in disguise, she can change her form she can infuse her life essence into someone and control them. She could do this multiple times. But then ultimately, you know, in this series of nine books, um, Legacy of the Jedi, it's either Legacy of the Jedi or Fate of the Jedi, whatever the nine final books are in canon. Um, Luke winds up meeting up with a lost tribe of, of Sith evil force users, and they actually wind up having to team up to hunt down and defeat Abeloth. And of course the Sith turn on Luke and, and Luke by this point is like in his, I don't know, like fifties, early sixties. He's super powerful winds up defeating Abeloth. And that's more or less where the old canon stops. So fans speculating are wondering, Oh, is Abeloth going to be a character that they bring into canon now? And it looks like when Balin's skull is, is standing on the hand of, of the father's statue, he's looking out into the distance and he sees like a light beacon. And that very well may be the temple of Mortis where the, ep- the three episodes took place that Anakin, Obi-Wan, and Ahsoka were a part of. Hopefully more to come. And this, this the episode ultimately ends on Ahsoka 
and Sabine looking out into the night sky on the planet Peridia. They're stranded. And Sabine thinks she sees something, but isn't sure. Ahsoka looks, and and you can't tell if she recognizes her or not, but it winds up being the force ghost of young Anakin Skywalker. So even in this other galaxy, obviously people can use the force. Force ghosts can appear. And I'm not sure if Anakin will have any sort of role helping Ezra, I'm sorry, helping Ahsoka and Sabine escape this planet and this galaxy. Now, season two has been discussed. It has not been confirmed or announced. Usually when you have something this popular of a series on Disney Plus or otherwise, well, maybe not Disney Plus. They're usually slow with their announcements. But if it's a Game of Thrones or something on Netflix, usually they announce season two right after the first or second episode of season one airs due to good ratings, etc. Again, been discussed but not announced. They need to have a season two, and it would work out with the timeline for new Star Wars movies coming out. So they do have dates that the next three Star Wars movies are releasing. And the three movies are essentially what's going to be episode 10 following Ray and probably Finn. What happens after episode nine? There's going to be a movie that is going to deal with the origin of the Force and the Jedi. And then a movie that will wrap up this Mandalorian, Ahsoka, Thrawn, Mandoverse type of thing. And here are the dates that these three movies, and they haven't been assigned a date yet, but May 2026, so you're talking two and a half years from now, December 2026, and December 2027. From a TV show standpoint, you have second season of Andor coming out next year, um, Acolyte, coming out next year, which takes place before The Phantom Menace and follows an acolyte of the Sith. Skeleton Crew, which is, I think, about a a bunch of young Force users who wind up getting lost somewhere. And then Mandalorian Season 4 is going to be 2025, I would imagine. And if there is an Ahsoka Season 2, it will be late 2025, early 2026. Again, if it's announced. In my order of the movies, I think the first movie that releases in May 2026 is the episode 10 movie starring Ray. They've been apparently working on that for a while. I think that's the first one that gets released. I think next is the Dawn of the Jedi movie, which takes place in the distant, distant past, exploring the origins of the Force. Even though you would have movies coming out six months apart, they are on polar opposite ends of the timeline spectrum, whether it's episode 10 in the future slash present, and then Dawn of the Jedi, whatever the movie's going to be called, I'm just going to call it that, that's going to be take, take place thousands of years in the past. And then I think December 2027 is going to be the culmination of the Mandalorian, Ahsoka, and Thrawn Mandoverse movie, which would make sense to me because if Mandalorian Season 4 comes out in 2025, and if Ahsoka comes out in end of 2025 or early 2026 then you have a year wait for that movie that ties up the TV sub, the TV stuff, Ahsoka and Mandalorian, that's going on on Disney+. Hopefully, Star Wars movies have been widely known or well-known to be announced and never come to fruition, Rogue Squadron you know, being the most noteworthy. Hopefully, the three that they announced actually come to light, but I do think the Ray movie will be first, episode 10 in 2026. And let's conclude with week five picks. I was 10 and six last week. 
Not a bad week. We'd love to get into the 12 plus win range. Let's start tonight. Amazon Prime Video, a game that I'm sure Al Michaels is going to be dry heaving in his mouth. Chicago at Washington. Chicago snatched defeat from the jaws of victory last week against the Broncos. Washington could have had a shot to beat Philadelphia if they had gone for two at the end of regulation. In Washington, I think the commanders will be too much for the Bears. Jacksonville at Buffalo. This is in London. Second consecutive week, the Jags will play in London. Uh, even though they did bounce back against Atlanta, Jacksonville did. I think Buffalo will be too much. Houston at Atlanta. Don't look now, but Houston's got like a top 10, top 7 offense. Atlanta can control the ball on the ground, but I think C.J. Stroud, who's been playing really, really good football as a rookie and hopefully can break that Ohio State quarterback curse, will get the win for the Texans. Carolina at Detroit. Detroit put on an absolute clinic in Green Bay last week. Carolina fell at home to uh, Minnesota. I like the Lions. Tennessee at Indianapolis. I can see this game going either way. Um, Tennessee shellacked the Bengals, much to my dismay, and I think the dismay of many. I think they will find a way defensively to control what either um, Anthony Richardson is probably in a quarterback. I'm not sure if Gardner Minshew is going to get any snaps. I see the Titans winning this in a close and ugly game. The Giants at the Dolphins. Dolphins. Moving on. New Orleans at New England. Now, this has like the makings of... New Orleans played Green Bay really well a couple weeks ago. They lost at home to Tampa Bay. I can't see after getting shellacked 38-3 at Dallas that... Belichick puts out another substandard performance or at least a loss. I think New England wins. Baltimore at Pittsburgh. Baltimore looked great at Cleveland last week. Huge win. Then again, Deshaun Watson did not start, and it was the rookie quarterback out of UCLA that did not have any answers. I think Baltimore right now, a more complete team. They will win at Pittsburgh. Philadelphia at the Rams. I guess I'm rooting for a tie, <laughs> um, but I think even though the Rams had a nice comeback or they were up big at, against the Colts, got it tied, went to overtime, uh, got the victory. I think Matthew Stafford is dealing with some sort of an injury, I think, in his hip. But I think the Eagles, even though they have not looked impressive, yet this season will get the victory in Los Angeles. And there'll be a ton of Eagle fans there, I'm sure. Cincinnati at Arizona feels like another coin flip game to me. Both teams are one and three. Both teams need a win badly. The Bengals more so because they are they have playoff and Super Bowl aspirations. The Cardinals do not. But I think the Cardinals wind up winning this game. I think they control the ball on the ground with both James Conner and Joshua Dobbs. I could see Dobbs running for between maybe 35 and 50 yards. Moving the pocket so they don't so the, the Bengal pass rush can't just tee off on him. And I think the, the Cardinals surprised with the win. Jets at Denver. I think this is, a, this is a game where the Jets are poised for an upset. If Zach Wilson can continue the strong play that he showed the last three quarters against the Chiefs, if he is starting to get this offense, get the West Coast offense, that will bode well for the Jets. And this is one of the eight winnable games that I believe that they have left. But I think the rally from last week at Chicago, I think, gives Sean Payton... Russell Wilson, that offense, and even maybe that defense, some credit and momentum. And it'll be an interesting defense. I think the Jets' defense can certainly control what the Broncos want to do. Even though the Broncos' defense is bad, probably dead last, I still think they can give Zach Wilson problems. Yes, he had a good three quarters against the Chiefs. This is in Denver. This is the um, 
trash talk bowl between uh, Sean Payton and Nathaniel Hackett, offensive coordinator of the Jets. I think it's going to be an ugly game. I will trust Russell Wilson more against the Jets D than I will trust at this point Zach Wilson against the Broncos defense. Chiefs at Vikings. Vikings got off the schneid, got their first win at Carolina. I'm sorry, Minnesota did. The Chiefs held on against the Jets. I do think Kansas City is too much for Minnesota here. I picked Dallas 23-20 over San Francisco. Unfortunately, hope I am wrong. Green Bay at Las Vegas. Not sure if Jimmy G is going to be the quarterback or if it's still going to be Aiden, rookie Aiden O'Connell. Um, Jordan Love did not look good at home against the Lions. The Lions are a much better team than the Raiders are. Much better defense and pass rush than what the Raiders have. I think the Raiders, this is a game that the Raiders could win if they can have efficient play from the quarterback position, whoever it may be. If they can get Josh Jacobs involved and have him run for over 100 plus yards. But I think the Packers, you know, these are two average teams or or around average, but I think I I will trust right now the Packers defense and running game to control the clock against the Raiders and get a victory in Las Vegas where there's going to be a ton of Packer fans. Packer fans travel really well, and it may feel like a home game for Green Bay. So that concludes the podcast for this week. Like always, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to listen to some Niner discussion and this week in the plus section, baseball playoffs, Ahsoka season finale, and concluding with week five picks. The NFL season kicks off tonight. It's a gross one, but it is football and something to watch. The Bears at the Commanders, 815 on Prime Video. I'm sure there'll be some college football on to watch as well. Tomorrow for you fantasy fans, On Prime Video, also the season finale of Wheel of Time Season 2. I will be watching and probably discussing on the Monday podcast. Major League Baseball Divisional Series starts on Saturday. NFL starts Thursday. We have a good slate of games on Sunday. Great game, Niners-Cowboys on Sunday night. And then Monday night, Green Bay-Las Vegas, which should be a competitive battle as well. So some good sports this weekend. Whatever you are doing, stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, and we will talk soon. Take care.